Well, I'm uh, feeling in a particularly generous mood today. I've brought along uh, a gift uh, with me. Uh, I want you to imagine I give it to you, so I'm not actually that generous. I'm not actually going to give it to you, but I want you to imagine that I give it to you, and in a frenzy of excitement, you kind of rip the paper off and discover inside um, some kind of machine. Now, a bit of a miracle, we managed to fit the machine inside. There you go. Uh, imagine you, you find a, a machine uh, inside. Looks like it probably cost me quite a lot of money, uh, but you're scratching your head. You, you, you can't, for the life of you, work out what to do with it. Now, what's the first question you have? More than anything else, do you want to know how long it took to make the machine? Is your primary question to do with the tools that were used in the whole manufacturing process? Or do you want to know the precise date that it was made? Unlikely. You probably want to know what in the world does this thing do and how do I use it without blowing us all up? And for that matter, why on earth did Jonathan give it to me in the first place? You want to know what it is for. You want to know the why. It might be interesting to know a little bit of the background about how it was made, but it's much more useful to know how to get the most out of the gift. Now, if you think about it, it's a bit odd then that when we come to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible, the first question almost everyone nowadays has in their mind is to do with how the world began. We're obsessed, aren't we, with questions of how it actually happened, when exactly it happened, how long it took, and whether it happened through evolution or not. Those are the kind of questions everyone these days tends to have. But what we really need to know about this world is why God made it, what it's for, and how we should live best in it. It's pretty fortunate then that Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 aren't the least bit concerned about answering the question of how God actually created the world. Really, it's only interested in telling us that he is the creator and explaining to us why he created the world in the first place. Now, to summarize in a sentence what we've been seeing over the last month or so, God created us in the first place to reflect and represent him and to fill and to form the earth. That's a month and a half, two months worth of sermons right there in that sentence. This week, what we're going to be unpacking, what I want us to see, is that in all of this, we were created for relationship. And that ultimately, we cannot reflect, represent, fill, or form all by ourselves. No, we were made to need one another. If you want to follow along, uh, I'm going to read the pretty famous passage that describes the creation of humanity in Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27, and then the corresponding account in Genesis 2 verses 18 to 25. Let's dive right in. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. 
And so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then into chapter 2, picking it up in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And so the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked but they felt no shame. Okay, three things I want to show you from these verses. Number one, why we need relationships in the first place. Second, what kind of relationships we actually need Uh, And then thirdly, I want to round it all off by looking at the key to getting these relationships. First of all then, why do we need relationships? You know, I think one of the most interesting things about this whole creation account that we've just read is every time you see God creating, whether it's the stars, the moon, the sun, the vegetation, the fish, the birds, the rest of the animals, every time he creates... God always says, or it always says in the description, he created. But only when God comes to create humanity does he refer to his own plurality. Only when God creates humans does he say, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Not my, but our. Not me, but us. Now, I'm not going to go into all the detail of what it means for God to be Trinity. We, we looked at that a few weeks back. If you want to catch up on that, it will be on the podcast, on the website, or on the church app. We're, we're, we're not going to go into what it means for God to be Trinity. All I want you to see today is that the Trinity gives us an understanding of ultimate reality that has personal relationship right at the very heart of it. From all of eternity, God's been this community of persons delighting in each other, loving each other, and communicating with each other, which I think goes some way to help explain chapter 2 verse 18, where it says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I mean, Up until now, everything that God has done, everything God's created, everything he's made is good. God makes the birds, they're good. God makes the fish, they're good. God makes the light, it's good. Then God makes Adam and there is something inherently not good about him. Now think about it. Why is the first human being 
deficient in some way? Why does this first human have this deep sense of lack? Why is the first human being unhappy, basically, in paradise? Well, I suggest it's because we are made in the image of someone who isn't just a me, but an us. Therefore, we won't fully be happy until we are not just a me, but also an us. You see, when Adam was the only individual, he desperately, desperately needed community because he was made in the image of one who never existed outside of community. And so to summarize what we've seen, God God refers to his plurality as he makes us because he made us for community. He made us in the likeness, he made us in the image of a community. And so we today cannot be our true selves and will always feel there's something missing, something lacking if we are only a me. It's like personal relationship lies at the very heart of what it means to be human. Personal relationships are what we were created for in the first place. However, we live in a culture here in the West that until recently has downplayed the significance of all of this. For way too long, relationships have been treated more as a means to an end, whether it's for our own personal sexual gratification or career advancement, or to just make us feel a little soothed and better about ourselves. But that doesn't fit with how we're designed and what we were made for. Personal relationships are not a means to another end. No, they are an end in and of itself. Which incidentally is why people are finally, at last, waking up to the problem of loneliness and the untold damage it has on our well-being. We need relationships because we are built in the image of an us, a trinity God, a God who is a community. That's why we need relationships. Secondly, moving on, what what kind of relationships do we need then? Well, three things I want to say about this. First of all, and this probably will come as no great surprise to you, but it has to be said, we need a deep personal relationship with God. If you remember, a few weeks back, I likened being made in the image of God to being a mirror. It's like a mirror has the capacity, unlike a stone or a rock, for example, of reflecting things. So you you can put a candle next to a rock, and the rock doesn't look anything like the candle. The rock doesn't respond in any way. It's just a rock. But you put a candle in front of a mirror, and the mirror cannot help but reflect the light of the candle. And so, when God says, let us make human beings in our own image, he's saying, let's make them able to give what we are giving each other. Let's create them with the capacity to love and be loved, to know and be known, to praise and be praised, to enjoy and be enjoyed. You know, most people think Christianity is kind of like, well, you, you, you come to church when you can fit it in, and you try as hard as you can to be good, 
but you're never totally sure if you're quite good enough. And you pray, especially when things are tough. You kind of send your prayers up, but you don't really know if anyone's listening. And occasionally when you're by the sea or you're looking out at a mountain range, you you get this sort of general vague sense of the presence of something other, the presence of God. Is that what this is talking about? There is something way more profound than that. You are called into his arms. You are called to overflow with the light of who he is. You're called to an assurance of his love. You're made for that kind of deep, personal, intimate relationship with God. Not just a general, I'm trying really hard to be good. I, I, I pray to him when I remember, I, I go to church when I can, I, I, I hope he likes me, I, I really hope he blesses me, I, I, I'm really putting my hopes that maybe one day he might take me to heaven. That's not what we're talking about here. You were made, created, designed to be brought into a very, very deep, close, personal relationship with him to give him love and to sense his love, to give him joy and to sense you are the apple of his eye, to give him praise and to sense his abundant, overwhelming delight in you. That's what we're made for. The question is, although we kind of know this stuff, are you living in the good of this? If not, what are you going to do about it? If this is core to who you are, why don't you pursue it more with a vengeance than you are right now? We need a deep personal relationship with God. Second, we're also made for a deep personal relationship with other human beings. As we've seen, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, just think about that for a moment. Think of what Adam had available to him in the Garden of Eden. Great food, 100% organic, way better than we've got around here. Not only that, but power. Adam was given dominion over all of nature. He had comfort, he had beauty, he had pleasure, he had everything going for him, and yet he is still unhappy. He's still alone he still needs human friendship. Now please, think about what that means. The implications are pretty staggering. Uh, Unless you believe that God made a mistake, and there's absolutely no indication that he did, on purpose, God made us so we have such a deep need for human relationships that not even paradise could satisfy it. He made us in such a way that there are many things he wants to show us, many things he wants to give us that can only come through relationship with other human beings. It's like paradise wasn't paradise without friendship. Let me quickly give you two very, very practical implications of this. First of all, Adam had all the possessions, all the pleasure, all the power in the universe, and he was lonely. What does that mean? Well, if you try to build a life that doesn't put personal relationships as an incredibly high priority, your life won't work. That's the first implication. Here's the second one. You can't grow into the image of God 
or even really know him without the help of community. If you want to be like him, if you, if you want to have his wisdom, his courage, his power, if you want to be a little more joyful, if you want to be more loving, if you want to grow into all that he meant for you to be, you cannot grow into the image of someone who is not just a me, but an us as an individual. You cannot possibly fully know him all by yourself. You you can't become who you're supposed to be without community. Now again, you don't need me to tell you that this flies right in the face of the individualism of our day. It's like, I want to pitch up on a Sunday, usually as the meeting's starting or preferably after it's begun so I'm not inconvenienced by actually having to talk to anyone. Uh, And I expect everything to be laid on for me. I want great worship where I can meet with God and receive without having to think about anyone else in the room Uh, and preaching that inspires and challenges me in equal measure without the pressure of actually being accountable to anyone to really do anything about it. As a guy called Sky Jathani puts it in his book, The Divine Commodity, I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than messy relationships with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipleship. Contrast that with what it says in Hebrews 3 verse 13, where we're told to exhort one another daily, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It kind of implies you really need to have some people who see you so often in day-to-day life that they see who you really are and what you're really like. Or to put it another way, outside of community, you still can't really know who you are. Let me try and illustrate it like this. How many of you have ever listened to a recording of your voice and thought it doesn't sound the least bit like you? Yeah, most people in the room. The reality is that is exactly how you sound to everyone else. It's just that you can't tell what you sound like from the inside. Or why is it that when you see a picture of yourself... You, you say, oh, that's so awful in that picture. Your, your friends are just very quiet. It's ever so slightly awkward. Why? That's how you normally look. <laughs> you, you don't know what you look like because when you look in the mirror, you're always incredibly careful to hold your stomach in and kind of jut your jaw out and, and angle yourself so you always see your best side. It's like you don't really know how you look or sound without the help of others. You desperately need community because here's what happens. You you, you come along to church, you listen to a podcast, you read a blog, maybe if you're really radical, you even read a book every now and again, and you think you're getting kind of all of this information, but 90% of what you're hearing you dismiss and assume it doesn't apply to you because you have this wonky view of yourself. You you don't know who you really are. It's like you've filtered out all kinds of things you desperately need to hear. Listen, you can't find God and grow into his image 
just as an individual. You, you, you cannot be a Christian outside of community. In fact, you'll never truly know yourself outside of community. You need a group of friends, people who affirm you, who confront you, who bear your burdens, who you talk honestly to, who you're transparent with. You have to have that. You get in the message. You cannot know God individualistically. You, you can't know a God who is not just a me but an us, only as a me. You also have to know him as an us. That that wonderful relationship that Adam had with God wasn't enough without another human being. Because it's only together that we image God. So, you need deep relationship with God. You need deep relationship with other human beings. Third, you also need deep personal relationships with people who are different than you. I think when we first read this passage, because of the way our culture has shaped us, we, we kind of assume it's all about gender, it's about maleness and femaleness and marriage and sex, all that stuff. Now, in all honesty, it does have a bearing on that. Rest assured, we are going to come back in the new year. We're going to preach a series that, that, that deals in a bit more detail with all of those kind of things. But let's not miss the forest for the trees here. Well, what does it mean when Adam had this deep relational need and God brought him Eve? Does it mean that we've got to be married in order to have our deepest relational needs met? Absolutely not. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, a perfectly valid way to be a Christian is to be unmarried. He says there are definitely some advantages to it, but, but also a whole stack of disadvantages as well. Please don't miss this. The, the Bible doesn't say that the only way to get your deep relational needs met is by getting married and having a family. As Paul spells out in Ephesians 5, Jesus is both the ultimate spouse and the ultimate brother. And if you have a deep relationship with him, you are brought into a family like this with other brothers and sisters where you're going to get all the love, all the care you ultimately need. Or at least that's how it's supposed to be. That's by way of an aside. Can I appeal to you? Let's do everything we can to be that kind of community, to be that kind of a family, to be brothers and sisters to one another, to open our homes, to open our lives, to keep embracing others and drawing them into our ever-extending family. Now, looking around the room, we've got some phenomenal people who do that all of the time. Can we all do it more and more and more? But coming back to the point of this passage, if it's not really saying that we need to be married to be relationally fulfilled, then what is it saying? Well, notice how when God sees that Adam's alone, he doesn't solve the problem by bringing him an animal for company. He brings all kinds of animals, Adam names them, but doesn't find a suitable companion or helper among the animals. That, that, that's not the thing he needs. But he doesn't bring him another male 
either. So is the point that men don't need other male friends? Is that the main point of this passage? I'd suggest not. Here's what I think it's saying. The fact that God doesn't bring Adam someone just like him is intended to demonstrate that your deep relational needs will not be met simply by finding people exactly like you. You also need to find people on the other side of the gender barrier, the racial barrier, the class barrier, the temperament barrier. You need people who are like you, but unlike you. It's like God brings Adam, someone who is hard to get to know. He brings him a helper who's slightly mysterious, someone who is ever so slightly different to him, someone who is going to stretch him, someone who's going to help him by seeing things from a different perspective. By the way, the word helper here, is in no way intended to be derogatory. I mean, the word help in the Bible, usually it's used to describe God in his relationship with us. So it certainly doesn't mean the woman is like some kind of errand runner or something. The whole point is that you can only help someone who is different. The woman can only help the man because she has some things that he doesn't have. And the reason we need help from one another Well, it goes all the way back to the scale of what God has called us to do. Remember again what we've been seeing over the last few weeks. We're called to reflect and represent him in the earth and to fill and form his creation. Listen, we can't do it by ourselves or simply with people just like us. It's like God has intentionally created us with weakness and fragility and lack to drive home to us our desperate need for one another in order to get the job done. And so you're designed to have deep personal relationship with God and with other human beings, but you also have to be very careful you don't simply surround yourself the whole time with people just like you. You have to have deep relationships with people who are the polar opposite to you, which is easier said than done. So finally, let's look at the key to getting the relationships that we need. I'm going to be brief here because when we get to Genesis 3 in a week or two's time, we get right back into this. But when Adam sees Eve for the first time, he says, at last. It's like, finally, he's found the relationships that he has been missing. Now, let's be honest. Our relationships never quite seem to have that same note of absolute satisfaction and finality to them, do they? Uh, Our our relationships are often superficial. Tragically, sometimes they're actually abusive. Even the best ones tend to break down from time to time. I think the reason is back in the Garden of Eden, they had something we have lost. But something we can get back through Jesus Christ. What did they have? Well, we're told in verse 25 that they were both naked, but they felt no shame. And I think that right there is the key to getting the relationships we need. Now, bear with me on this. Hear me out. Some of you already, your minds are wandering in an unhelpful direction. Hear me out on this. Their nakedness, it speaks of absolute transparency. 
It's like they weren't in control of what the other person saw, that, that they didn't feel the need to hide anything, that they weren't afraid of exposure, that they didn't need to control what the other person knew. Why? Because they were unashamed, that they were completely at ease with themselves. And isn't that what we all need? Don't we all long to be totally known and yet still completely loved? The problem is, we live in a world that forces us to choose between the two. And so a lot of us end up thinking we can only get love if we try desperately to be someone we're not. It's like we think the way to find love is to not let people see our flaws, our selfishness, our pride, our fears, our weakness, our anxiety. But we can get love as long as we don't let people see what we are really like. Or we can be open and transparent and then find ourselves just constantly getting rejected and ridiculed by people. Now, we're going to get into the reason for that in a couple of weeks' time, but in short, the minute Adam and Eve sinned by ignoring God and deciding to be their own masters, at that point, for the first time, they felt shame, and so they hid. And really, the same thing has been played out in the life of every person ever since, except for one. I will get to him for a, in a moment or two, but really for all of us in this room, it's like our experiences deep down, we know what it is to feel shame. We know what it is to be ashamed of stuff. Whether you believe this story in Genesis or not, whether you believe the Bible or not, whether you believe in Christianity or not, you know there's something wrong and you have to cover it up. Now, if you remember, we've seen, haven't we, how the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they know each other completely, perfectly, yet still love each other with a perfect love. Always have, always will. And that, I think, is what all of us crave deep down, because we're made in the image of this God. That's what we're all made for. The problem is we can't get it because we're too frightened to open up to others. Because we know if we open up, then everyone will see all of our flaws. So what we desperately need is for our sin and our shame to be covered. And that's where the one person who ever lived and knew no shame comes in. Jesus lived the sinless life that we never could and yet found himself crucified on a cross, literally naked. You know what he was doing? He became naked and carried our sin and our shame so that we could be completely covered. Why was he willing to do that? He did it because he loved you. He knew who you were. He, he looked deep into your heart, deep into your mind. He knows everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do, but he still loves you anyway. Now, here's the thing. If, if you can believe in Jesus' nakedness on the cross for your sake in such a way that you can now stand unashamed before God, then doesn't it free you to be transparent with other people too? That doesn't mean you blurt everything out, 
doesn't mean you, you suddenly have no boundaries. I'm not talking about that. It just means that if you know that God sees you as you really are and still loves you, more than that, that he has covered your shame, then surely you now have the freedom to go out into the world and be transparent with others. Because you already have the approval and acceptance of the one whose opinion matters most. Do you see? Because of the love you already have through Jesus, you are now set free to be real in all your other relationships. You can finally, at last, have the relationships that you need to have. It's like Jesus, he was stripped so you could be covered. And that is his gift to you. And really, that's the key to having the relationships that will make you the human being that God always meant for you to be. Let's pray.